Welcome to the Rabbi Laura podcast and today it is my privilege to have with me the Minister for Faith who is Stephen Greenhouch and I want to say on this podcast that I met him, I've never met him in person, we've met loads on Twitter and on Zoom calls and what differentiates him from pretty much any one other minister that I have had contact with is how engaged he is with the different faiths, how interested, how not patronising. And it is in all the times that we really needed someone on our side, it's been this time in COVID. And to have someone who's informal, who's an entrepreneur, who's used to running local government, working with people of faith, it's been a breath of fresh air. So I just want to thank you for that very, very much popping up in all these calls and we've had all these kind of wild calls with all different types of religious people on it and you've had to be really really careful not to make an enormous mistake which would have caused an, you know some kind of religious thing nothing so really well done and also well done to your team who brief you because I know behind every really excellent minister there is a very strong team briefing making sure you don't put your foot in it too often. So you obviously have a fantastic team, which I also know from dealing with them. So first of all, please can you explain what on earth it means to be the Minister for Faith and Communities? Well, if I just say, Rabbi Laura, that I became a minister and I describe myself as the alphabet soup minister because I've got quite broad responsibilities because a Lord's Minister typically has responsibilities for a department and does all the business of that department. So that's the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. But my ministerial brief covers communities, as you say, but within that faith, importantly. And I think it's probably had more resonance than it ever would have had because of COVID, as you know, because places of worship have, were, you know, were closed in the first lockdown and then you know, closed again for communal worship during the second lockdown. And so engagement with faith communities and with people of faith has been a kind of very important part of what I've done since I was appointed in mid-March. But I also have responsibility for building safety. Post-Grenfell, that's very important. And, you know, I was the leader of the council for the borough right next to the Royal Borough of Kensington, Chelsea. And I saw Grenfell happen and know that it was an absolute tragedy and we don't want to see that happen again. You saw it happen, you were there in the nearby? I saw, you know, I was kind of could see it burning, you know, because it's what it's not, it's visible from Hammersmith and Fulham. And in in fact, our town hall gave shelter and refuge to people affected by that who had to decamp, because not only the tower had to decamp, but the surrounding properties on the estate, on Lancaster West Estate, had to decamp as well. It was pretty horrific because it's very densely populated where the tower is. And it was my first ministerial visit was to, to Grenfell Tower. I've got the building safety brief, but also the fire brief in the Home Office as fire minister. And it's fair to say the response on the night by the Fire and Rescue Service wasn't, wasn't great. And there are many lessons, and we have a whole inquiry on that that's moving on to phase two. But the phase one inquiry has given a series of recommendations to fire and rescue services. So there's a, there's a, there's a, a job of work to be done that requires you know, a, a fundamental reform of our fire and rescue services. And we'll be publishing a white paper on that in the not too distant future and as well as uh, you know they also thought I didn't have enough work to do I'm new parliamentarian I'm new to the brief of being faith minister so they thought they'd lob in leasehold as well which Whoa. is um, you know due for reform following a law commission some law commission work looking at leaseholders as a tenure because in Scotland actually it doesn't really exist it's common hold in France it tends to be common hold or they call uh, copropriétaire and yet we have this thing called leasehold in this country and a lot of leaseholders 
don't feel they're getting a fair, fair deal from their building owners and landlords. So, you know, again, that's something that we're looking at, how we can stop freehold abuses and reform leasehold in the future. So I've got quite a broad brief. So I wanted to set that into context because, you know, as you know, Rabbi Laura, I also lost my mum in the first lockdown and I had COVID myself. So I was kind of appointed in February. And the Prime Minister normally rings you up when you're a new minister, but I know obviously worked for him when he was mayor. But I got his political secretary ringing up and I started to cough. And he said, are you OK? And I said, well, yeah, have you got COVID? And he thought said it almost as a joke, but I actually did have COVID. And it kind of like, it got, I did get COVID by the time I was, you know, but by mid-March, I definitely had COVID. And I was ill for about a week, although I wasn't tested. And my mum and dad got it, they were tested. And my mum died and my dad survived. So it was kind of... One of those pretty horrendous experiences. In fact, she died in the hospital where my, my dad worked his entire, basically his adult life. He was a consultant there and a senior surgeon for 30-odd years. So we saw her the night before she died. So a team who loved her saw her die. A team in the hospital who knew her. Well, yes. In fact, the day before, my dad's trainee who was volunteering in Franklin gave her an ice cream. You know, it was an act of kindness. It's so hard, isn't it? Very hard. Very hard. Sorry. No, oh, no. What's lovely about you, one of the things I'm really a big fan, is that you are the most human minister to deal with. And one of the things about being the minister of faith is you have to deal, have had to deal, with all the discussions about death and dying. And you know what it's like because your mum died. So you know what it's like not to be able to go to the hospital a lot to visit. You know what it's like to have a teeny funeral. You know. And that's why the faith representatives feel so looked after by you because you're so human with us yeah um it's not been easy no it's not easy for many families in the country no it's a tough tough virus i don't think it's easy for many people so yes i have that empathy with people yeah you and do. we did go through it yeah and we have it with you we have it with you because we know what your pain is like because so many of us have lost people and have had to look after people in this time which shouldn't have been yeah well the tough the tough thing is with my mother she was um you know i would describe her as one of life's givers she she always gave to people and i think you know people of jewish faith understand that you know they don't just take they give and she looked after her own mother until 2010 and my own mother lived till her mid-90s and my mother died at 82, which sounds like a grand age, but, you know, she cared for her own mother till 2010. She looked after her own aunt until she died some years later. And she looks, and, you know, essentially she looked after my dad and supported him with his career as people of that era did. Yeah. And she brought up two children and, you know, she cared and loved her grandchildren and she cared about people and people, you know, in their droves have recognised that. Yeah. One of the things that occurs to me when people die at the age of 82, also before she should have, that's what's absolutely clear, is that you've had her in your life all that time. She is, you know, every, you know, you you are, I'm not going to say how old, you know, middle-aged, and you've had her all that time. And when people have lost younger, they then live a whole load of life without that parent. No, I have but, to say, I wouldn't have actually cried if it wasn't first of Advent yesterday, which was the moment she would summon the family round to celebrate that. So it's just a tough, tough time. It's ironic that you've got it the day after. I've been thinking about her a lot. Mm. Good. Well, I'm, it's a privilege to be by your side, just like it's a privilege to have you by our side. And you said about your mum that she was a giver. 
And I think that that's why you understand religion and faith. Yes, my mother was very devout. You know, she made, she grew, grew more devout as she grew older, actually, it would be fair to say. And her, But her parents weren't devout. They, they were more, I'd say, agnostic at best, maybe even, you know, but she was very devout and, and faith mattered to her. Why? What, what did it mean to her? Well, she had a moral compass and she understood that, it, you know, you have to care about people, care about your neighbour and care about your community. And um, her childhood had been affected by... <clears throat> by that, in a way that the twentieth century was was a terrible for conflict, and she wanted people to get on with each other. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that people in their eighties have a wisdom and a perspective because they under they've seen what it really looks like. They know what it tastes like. They know what it smells like to be in in traumatic war, and so they have a, a different view. And when you said about you know, your mum giving and nurturing, it comes against that background of war. Yes, I mean, she wrote her autobiography and she finished her last bit the week before she died. So we published volumes one and two and in three and four will be published shortly. It's interesting to read what it was like during the Second World War. Now, you know, my, my mother was from a very interesting family because she was in Central Europe and my grandfather was, would you describe him as German-speaking? He saw himself as Austrian, but, you know, he could equally speak Czech because the family was not as straight, at least clearly one thing or the other. So he went to a Czech university, spoke perfect Czech, and he was born near the Czech, to the sort of Polish border of Silesia. So he kind of, in farming land, you know, farming. And my grandmother on the mother's side was much more German-speaking. So there was a slightly different, you know, there was a sort of Czech branch, a German branch, and... And my mother had very much, not, not the kind of Germanic features, she was very Slav looking. And we have a fiery temper. And I have that from my mother. Well, and a wonderful emotional heart. So she could get, get emotional about things. And maybe that's me. I'm, I get very emotional. Someone said you're emotional. I said, oh, yeah, I am God emotional. Thank God you do. Thank God. I mean, thank God that you get emotional. People that don't get emotional when their mum dies, that then they get ill, actually. Yeah, no, we, we always, we'll never forget our mums, will we, you know? No, no, we will not forget my mum's. Mine died 20... Oh, actually, next week is Hanukkah. Yeah. And she died on the fourth candle of Hanukkah 23 years ago. Oh, 24 years ago. Whoa. That's a long... Yeah, I understand. Yes, a long time. And I still can feel her skin. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So that's my... That's about my mum. My father and my mother met through parents that we're in business together. My, wow, um, what business? I explain how it worked. My, my grandfather, who I only met once or twice, was a very absent chap, but he was a very good, very gifted businessman, very uneducated, Rabbi Laura, and but very street smart. And he met, um, and he ran a tunneling company. And my, my mother's father, who was my grandfather, who taught me to ski and to ride a bike, Dr. Carl Gross, he was a very successful mining engineer. He ran the largest mining engineering concern in the Ruhrgebiet after the war. So in post-war Germany, he was a very successful businessman, but also a very good technical engineer. But he had all the academics. He was a great chess player. But my other grandfather was the kind of barrow boy, lived off his wits, you know, left school at 14. Maybe that's why you identify with Jews. But they both met through business. And my dad met my mother 
when he was 16 and they sort of fell in love and then they married in their early 20s. Yeah, it was a very, very successful marriage. So my great-grandfather was also a barrow boy and also, you know, an immigrant. Yeah, so it's interesting to me, because you haven't been on a lot of these calls or before you became minister, you don't know how different you are. But it's interesting to me now to piece the, together the what you're saying about people who came from non-academic backgrounds, business people, people from Central Europe, people with immigration, people who understood the war, people who understood generosity. And I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. That's why he's straightforward and not snobby and likes religious people. So you are a very excellent product. You are the inheritance of, who, of what they've given you, and you can see it. And we are the beneficiaries. So thank you to your mum. May she be of blessed memory. And your dad. How is your dad doing now? Well, he's fine. He's, a, he's one of life's fighters, and he did very, he's, done very, he's doing well. But he's missing mum. And mm. my sister and I, obviously, circle the wagons and try and give him you know, as much support as we can. Yeah. Oh, I love that expression, circle the wagons. That's brilliant. So I'm going to take you, I'm going to move you into into kind of faith land and COVID land, if that's okay. Just to tell people what, what a Minister for Faith does, because people might not understand. Yeah. Well, I think it, it's, the job is what you make of it. But first of all, you've got to take, you know, I think someone said events, dear boy, events about politics. And I think it's fair to say that we're really focused on supporting and engaging with faith communities, given that... So many of the key festivals of the year have not been what we'd expect them to be because of <laughs> That's COVID. An so, yeah. And and you know that when the places of worship are, are essentially closed, certainly for communal worship on two occasions, that you know celebrating High Holy Days will be different, and different communities affected in different ways. And so I, I first of all, I think I'm a historian by nature. Academically, I loved history. I loved reading books. So learning about different faith communities being really part, interesting part of the job. And I think it's important as faith minister um, that you understand faith communities, that you're faith literates and that you have empathy and that you kind of work out what's important so that your job as a, as a minister is to make sure government realises that and that, we're, that we come up with um, you know, the, 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 the best possible environment to keep people safe, but also the, you know, as free as possible to pursue what they want to do and what's important to them. So when you've done that learning, which is brilliant, and I think faith literacy is vital here, it needs to be kind of in the curriculum full on, what have been your aha moments when you're like, whoa, I didn't realise that, that's interesting. What kind of aha moments have you had? Well, I, I suppose I go back to moments like the first meeting I had was with the leaders of each particular faith. So I had a kind of this bizarre thing where I was being onboarded by chatting to Archbishop Justin or Cardinal <laughs> Vincent and the oh, chief wow. rabbi. And it's slightly bizarre, you know, in these kind of... And the chief rabbi sort of like... I remember him quoting a Harvard Business Review study saying, you do realise that people of faith are happier and live longer. <laughs> it's been shown yeah. according to the Harvard yeah, Business Review. We all say that with a smug smile. Yeah, right? yeah. It's sort of like, I thought, oh, right, OK, that's interesting. And that's kind of a good selling point. And what I also found very interesting was in the more hierarchical religions, and obviously, you know, I'm a Roman Catholic, so that's the ultimate hierarchical religion. You sort of escalate everything to the Pope. But then again, I think Judaism, you know, chief rabbi for his community, I know there are different strands of Judaism, but, you know, it's hierarchical. And then I guess, you know, in that sense, Archbishop Justin is pretty much the head. I sort of get a sense that 
there are strong commonalities within a framework of slight differences, if that makes sense. In what way do you see that? And so what I find very, my aha moments are things like, you know, there isn't just one Church of England. There isn't one form of Judaism. There isn't one form of Catholic Catholicism. It's like politics. They're different blends of the same faith group. You know, I've learned about liberal Judaism, reformed Judaism, you know, more orthodox, the ultra-orthodox, you know, but also my other aha moment. And it's kind of like the same with the Church of England. You get the kind of like, my dad describes them as, Glory to God in the High Street Brigade, as opposed to the ones for whom, you know, the high church Anglicans that, you know. So it's sort of like you've got to recognise they all come from a different place, you know. Okay, I do like that expression, glory to God in the high street. Okay, that's good. No, of course, it's it's interesting the pros and cons of that hierarchical, because of course Reform Judaism is very non-hierarchical and also egalitarian. But what's interesting about the hierarchical religions, for instance, one of the best parts the world and particularly for Jews of Roman Catholics being hierarchical is when we had Vatican II what came out of it really made a difference in Pope John I mean, yeah and he changed the world Pope John was a great good. man such a great man and Vatican II and particularly you know relating to Jews and I mean guilt for Jesus's death even you just say you just think gosh that is off the scale so I think I'm not a high. I'm very and not hierarchical. I realise that. Probably gathered that in my personality as well. But there is an advantage in organisation, and there's the question is the delicate balance between not enabling people to have their voices heard, but also getting the job done. Which is interesting because you've come from a an entrepreneurial city hall kind of spaces into the into the ministry and i'm imagining that when you were lobbying on behalf of faith groups i played every trick in the book (laughs) so what did you play what did you play what tricks in the book did you play well you've got to go to where the people decision makers are haven't you and lobby them hard so you know i lobbied the pm i lobbied michael gove i not lobbied because cabinet office is very important i lobbied dominic cummings i lobbied everybody good so what did you say like they you must have said they need this what did we need what I know is, you know, so my, again, my own personal experiences, I do understand how important communal worship is, you know. And I also know how much effort places of worship put into making themselves COVID secure in between the f- first lockdown and the second lockdown. And, you know, really magnificent. And some didn't open up for long periods of time, but when they did open up, they opened up in a very, very thoughtful way with stewards, with kind of pre-booking. But, you know, we've seen the advent of Zoom faith and, you know, everything's by Zoom or Teams or... But equally, you know, we, we've got to recognise that, you know, there's nothing beats going to a place of worship that means something to you. So in, in, in our, my case, ours opened up the week before, the Sunday before lockdown two. And I went with my father because that's when my mother went every week. And it was really important. But, you know, it was very, very socially distanced. You had a very clever way of taking communion, but, you know, you didn't sing but just being in that environment and seeing the parish priest who knew my mum really well, going to the lady chapel where she always used to light a candle after the service and then leaving was very important to the family and to my dad and me in particular. Gosh, that is interesting. How was communion taken? Well, you kind of have to sort of like not say, you know, the body of Christ and then chant together. You kind of say it separately and then you go up and you basically take take it in a kind of... In, in a way that is hasn't touched a human hand. It's a sort of oh, way right, of being I able to take the bread so without... Two without so they the... avoid the chanting element of collective chanting and they enable you to take the, 
the biscuit or whatever, you know, in a, in a, in a way that isn't going to infect you. So, I mean, I just, uh, so, I, you know, it's kind of interesting. But then that was my one experience. And then it shut down again for lockdown too. So you have to do it virtually again. <laughs> I have to say the thing about not singing, especially when I'm sad or I'm anxious, singing is so calming. It is very calming. And yeah. communal singing, it's the, my, that's the way for me that I pray the most. I think and that's very true for I many things. I mean, you know, it's completely right and full stop. But I do feel we've been robbed by COVID of, of that. But, you know, we'll, we'll come back. We'll come back. How, how is Christmas going to play out, do you think? How's it going to be for people? And I, I, I don't know. Look, I, I, I was asked by the Secretary of State to deliver the messages around the tiering for London and the South East last week. So I was on the call with... You know, the mayor as part of the London Transition Board, the local council leaders the following day and his, his representatives for London. And then the South East where Kent is in tier three and other parts of the county are in tier one. And the South East is all over the place. So it's kind of what, I, what struck me was, you know, we are leaving lockdown, but it's not like we're free. You know, we've got these are fairly tough tiers. And I understand. I mean, the last thing is we want is the NHS... I mean, we're seeing sort of capacity issues, capacity issues in North and East London in particular, because Havering is very high and the Newham is very high. I mean, I mean, COVID is basically affecting areas where the housing quality is not as good as the rest of London, where people live in a dense environment. It's hitting inequality, you know, so people who have got from, you know, more socially deprived backgrounds are getting it more often and that's then they're hospitalising more. And that's the reality you know, is how I interpret it. Although, and also it kind of goes through the young, like a dose of salts. So we saw at one stage, it was in the West, in Richmond, where I grew up, but also Kingston and then some of the outer London boroughs because the students were moving around and transmitting. But that's not danger to life. Then it hits the over 60s and it becomes, a, you know, much more of a danger to hospitalisation and to life. But we're, we're knowing more about the disease. So that, so that, that you, you, you're less likely to die now from COVID than you were in lockdown one because they, they, they don't just give supportive care they know what they, they've got lots of treatments to help you yeah it's interesting because I've been because I'm Israeli I've been to Israel to look after our oldest who was having a quite a challenging time yeah surprisingly and in Israel the numbers they did they didn't do great what can I say they locked down completely at the beginning fine then they completely lifted it and actually what we saw is lots of people going to synagogue singing in synagogue and what just what happened surprise surprise 10 days later boom another huge wave so it was such a shame. So in fact, that is a validation for how we've done it here by the negative. But what's interesting in Israel is that they used, very, right from the very beginning, uh, steroids. So they did a different method of treating the, the acutely ill and far, far fewer people died. And I think that that's now been adopted here. So which is interesting because, as you say, thank God, whereas it was something terrible, like three quarters of people who went into intensive care, now the numbers are much less, thank God. So I think it, that is... It is different, very different thing. Thank That's God. interesting. You and can it, learn from different countries, can't you? That's interesting. Mm. Yeah, I think the international. I mean, the international collaboration has been amazing. How is the international collaboration going to work on vaccines so that they are fair for poorer countries? Because I don't really understand it. How does that work? The, the reality is, I don't know. But what I, what I can say is, the rollout of the vaccines is going to be a huge challenge because people kind of assume that as soon as it's available, they're okay. And it will take it'll take a while to roll it out, and they're going to have to start with the people that are most at risk. So if we're trying to preserve life 
and also ensure we have, you know, we've got to get to the over 60s quickly, in my view. Uh, the Prime Minister's appointed Nadim Zahawi as the MP that's going to, he's in Bays, one of the, he's a very good guy. He's an, on, another business guy, practical man. I'm a huge fan of his. You know, he, I, I only know him by seeing him on the media. And he is an old boy at the same school my, my kids are at, my boys, not my daughter. And he handed out the prizes. So, you know, I've seen him in the flesh speak. And he's a plain speaking chap. And I think they've just got to focus on getting it out to those who need it most. I think that's the way to do it and ensuring they've got a decent supply. And yeah, I think that's, but that's logistically going to be a real challenge. Can I come back to what you were saying about Zoom faith as an expression? What do you think is going to happen? What is going to be the lasting effect of this, of what you've seen? Because now you understand faiths and you're really on our side, which is wonderful. What do you think is going to happen to the quality of people's religious experiences? I think we've got to recognise that technology is here to stay. In the same way we're seeing a shift in our shopping habits to going online, we've got to recognise, and also events. People do want to be there and see people, but they often just, with the nature and pressures of life, can't be there. So a second best experience is to be there via technology. So I think we've got to accept that we're going to have a much more of a hybrid experience to faith and that it will always remain, that there'll be a digital challenge alongside the being there in person. And obviously, as we become comfortable, that it's, we're not putting ourselves at risk by being together, that will grow. But I think the digital channel will never shut down. I mean, it's kind of like Pandora's box that's opened and will never be closed. Oh, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think that's right. We will be hybrid. I don't see it as a Pandora's box because I think so many people who weren't, be, weren't able to get places. Like, I've had loads of people who are disabled. Yeah, more people will reach it. It'll actually increase the reach. That's all. Yeah. See, the gl- well, glass is always half full for you, Rabbi Laura. That's always, <laughs> you know... No, no, I just love data. And the data shows that, for instance, young people... So in July, my favourite piece of COVID data is that in July, 50% of young people under the age of, I think, 25 went to one form or another of an online service. 50%. That's off the scale. That's brilliant. Perhaps I use the phrase Pandora's box because I'm thinking about my kids. And if I can get them off the screens and actually talk to me, it'd be nice. No, that's true. (laughs) That is true. So I think the world of mental health and the world of uh, the quality of interpersonal communication is a real challenge now. Well, that's what I was thinking of, but I think you're right. No, you're absolutely right. And we know there's a direct correlation between number of hours, particularly on social media, and mental ill health in young people. So no, that is definitely definitely a challenge. I'm going to stop because I promised I would do this in half an hour. Is there anything else you want to say about your role to people who are listening? No, I just want to say we need leaders like you, Rabbi Laura. I know you're (laughs) stepping away to do something else. I've really enjoyed meeting some fascinating people like you, but also, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think we can look to a a brighter future than, uh, you know, 2021, I guarantee will be better than 2020. Let me tell you. (laughs) Well, I'm going to take that guarantee from your mouth to God's ears. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.